Okay, well, we are in part three of this series, uh, simply on the armor of God. And again, I say happy Mother's Day. I read a poll that just over of about 2,000 women in this poll, and on average, they had 21 pairs of shoes. And so I actually counted my, my wife's shoes. She doesn't know this. Uh, but after I saw this, I was like, no, this, can this be real? And I'm not kidding you, 21 pairs of shoe. But that does not make her average. Uh, I'm just saying that she has 21 pairs of shoes. And what was interesting about this is that they found out that uh, they tend to only wear four or five regularly. I don't know if that's, if, if you find it to be true, ladies. Uh, it says the study found that a typical woman's wardrobe will contain four pairs that have never been worn. Is that true, ladies? Just curious. Can you attest to that? Some hands going up. Okay. And then uh, also it says five that have only been worn once, which means on average over half the pairs of shoes or almost half the pairs of shoes that women own, they either never wear or they've only wear one time. And so uh, I just thought that was something to share. I don't know why. That's just, it's Mother's Day and it thought it fit. So, but, but I, I looked in my own closet in the shoes that I wear, and I would say the same is true. There's some shoes there that I just don't want to get rid of, but I'd hardly ever wear them. And so I think that's kind of something we can all probably relate to, actually. And some people actually wear shoes that are fully worn out, that they're so tired of walking themselves, they're screaming, don't wear them anymore, but you continue to wear them. Anybody like that at all? You have, like, good shoes, but then you keep wearing the old ones. And uh, my kids do that sometimes, and I don't really quite understand it. At least my son does. And uh, so anyways, I titled the message today, Shoes of Peace, uh, because we're talking about the shoes of peace, and I knew this was a message from the Lord because um, uh, one of the ways, and kind of simple ways that got confirmed a couple of weeks into preparing for this uh, series, a couple of months back when I felt like the Lord told me to teach on the armor of God after Easter, I started counting the dates, and I was like, well, what's going to come on Mother's Day? And it was on shoes, and I thought, well, then this must be the Lord. So, um, you know... <laughs> That's literally how I made the decision to teach on the armor of God, because we're talking about shoes on Mother's Day. It must be from God. All right, so Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we're going to get into the Word of God and trust that He's going to say something to us and, uh, and believe that He has a word for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing to a church on how they should live as Christians, uh, things to be aware of as they live for Christ after they're being saved. And I think that's really important for you to understand the whole point of this uh, letter in Ephesians, and I've invited you, and I invite you now to read through the book of Ephesians in this series. You should be reading through it. Uh, multiple times or six chapters in there. Read one chapter a week if you need to, um, but, but read through it multiple times if you can. And so this book, Ephesians, this is it's such a great book because uh, it's really written for people who have given their life to Christ and they want to know, what do I do now? How do I live? And what's going to come my way? And that's what the book of Ephesians really helps us understand. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's writing. We're going to read verses six, uh, 10, verses 10 through 17. It says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm. Okay, so if I could highlight that, if I was in your Bible, I'd circle that for you. I'd highlight, underline that against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Now, that's really important to understand. He's saying this is not a war of physical, it's of spiritual. He says, but against evil rules, authorities of the unseen world, so you don't see this battle, but it's happening, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So your fight is not just against Satan, it's against Satan and his demonic forces, these evil spirits, and he says, in heavenly places, so a spiritual realm. All right, therefore, he says, put on every piece of God's armor, so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. 
in the time of evil, you'll be able to stand firm. Then after the battle, you'll be, uh, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, the body armor of God's righteousness. We've covered those two pieces. Then he says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. And he goes on to say, in addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, so today we're going to simply hone in on and talk about these uh, peace shoes or these shoes of peace. So I want to put a, a picture up on the screen. This is a picture of what might look like a Roman soldier's shoes. And you're going to notice on the very bottom, the reason why this is a good photo for us to see is because of the nails on the bottom. Those are for, for grip, essentially like what we'd see as modern-day cleats. So you see athletes wear cleats in games to keep their footing, keep their traction, so that uh, they can have better grip to the ground. This is what Paul has visually in his mind. So here's what Paul essentially is saying. If, if there's going to be moments in your life you're going to need uh, symbolically and spiritually to have shoes that have grip, that means there's going to be things and forces coming against you on your faith journey that are going to try to knock you down. There will be a day that all hell will break loose on you and you're going to need to have sure footing. You're going to need to make sure that you have good cleats, if that makes sense. That's what Paul is getting at. And so the tension then that we realize with this, if Paul says, hey, you're going to have days that all hell breaks loose on you. You're going to have seasons. You're going to have moments. You're going to have a year. You're going to have months. You're going to have trials. You're going to have all these things that are coming your way. Have your footing. Here's what that means about peace. And this is not a good tension, but if you have your notes, you can write this in. All right. The tension with, with peace is this. This is your first fill-in. A lot of fill-ins today. So make sure you follow along with me. We don't truly know we have peace, right in peace, until something goes wrong. There, there, that brings a lot of tension for us. So the only way to find out if you have peace is for something to go wrong. Why? Because everything feels at peace when nothing is wrong. So how do you know if you really have peace? Well, something's got to go wrong first to find out. And that's, that's a tension in that. John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, have peace, I've overcome the world. So there will be trouble, and trouble oftentimes reveals whether or not we really have the peace of God in us, all right? So today we're going to talk about this idea of peace, which means, by the way, this is really good news, we don't have to lose our minds when all hell breaks loose on us. Paul is trying to help us as Christians, as believers. He's saying, you don't have to panic when all hell breaks loose on you. Now, if you don't have Christ, you might begin to panic and have anxiety, but, but if you're a follower of Christ and you know him, you get to function differently, that's what he's trying to remind this body of believers. And so it's now possible for us to maintain peace even when all hell breaks loose on us. Literally hell, the forces of hell are coming against us. We can still have peace. All right, so how do we do that? How does that look? That's what we're going to unpack here. Okay, first, we need to understand some things about the enemy. All right, there are some things that you and I need to understand about the enemy before we jump into peace. So I want to talk to you about the goals of Satan or some goals of Satan. I'll give you three, and then I'm going to talk about his approach. I'll give you four stages of approach that the enemy attacks. Why? Well, because if this enemy is coming against you, I want you to be prepared and ready for what does that look like? What does that feel like? How do I know this is Satan? How do I know this is me? And we talked about that already in the series, but I want to dive a little deeper into that. And then we'll talk about what this and how we take up peace and how we fight against this demonic force or what we'll call Satan even though we really know it's probably his demonic forces because Satan's not omnipresent. Okay, here we go. So three goals of Satan that I want you to consider today and, and just kind of sit in, okay? Think about these things. Number one, keep us ineffective. 
Okay, so you have to remember here in this letter in Ephesians, he is talking to believers. And last week I taught you that, and it's true in Scripture, that if you're a believer in Christ, Satan cannot take your salvation. The moment you become a follower of Christ and you receive uh, Christ as your Savior, you put him Lord as your life, you accept and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation comes. And that cannot be taken from you. So Satan's plan is not to remove salvation. He can't do that. So what he does is try to, uh, as much as he can, to make you ineffective in the kingdom of God. Here's what the verse says in 1 Peter 5, 8. Stay alert. It says, watch out for the great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for, here's the highlighted word, someone. He's looking for an individual. He looks for you, by the way, and me. And he's looking to devour, Paul says. So let's unpack this a little more deeply. Ultimately, since he can't take your salvation as a believer, he'll just do all he can to make you a miserable Christian. He wants you to live, in other words, kind of like you're in hell on earth, while God at the same time is trying to remind you to bring heaven down to earth. So, so as a saved believer, you can still live like you're in hell, in a sense. Freaking out, panicking, worry, stress, anxiety, fear, all these things that consume hell. And yet, Christ says you don't have to live that way while you're on earth. Instead, God actually invites his followers to bring heaven down to earth. So we don't have to live that way. And since Satan can't send the believer to hell, here's what he'll do. He'll just keep them from taking others to heaven. Do you hear that? You got to really kind of think about this today. That it's not ultimately just my job to bring people to heaven. Yes, I spend my job, if you would, profession, whatever you want to call it, calling to teach the word of God to people. But ultimately, as a believer in Christ, ultimately, your calling is the same as my calling, being glory to God and to bring others to the Father's house. Which in Hebrew is the Beth Av, right? The Father's house. It's for you to go and find lost sheep and to bring them into the Father's house. That's your calling. So I want you to think about this, that maybe Satan's not trying to get you out of heaven, especially if you're a believer in Christ, you're already saved and justified before Christ. So he has one task, to keep you from bringing others to heaven with you. To make you ineffective. So if I lose you to heaven, okay, that's fine, I've lost you. So now my job is simply this, and I can't take that. I'm just going to do everything in my power, put anything in your path that's going to prevent you from taking others with you. It's to make you ineffective. Number two, keep you focused on what we don't have. This is what he does. Keep us focused on what we don't have so we lose sight of what we do have. Okay, Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any tree of the garden? And then she says, of course we can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit. It's only that one, the one in the middle from the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And God said, and he says, God said, you must not eat, even touch it. If you do, you will surely die. Here's the point. He says, hey, what Satan does in the very beginning, this is one of his goals is to get your eyes off of all the things that God has given you and put your eyes on the things that you don't have. How does that work practically? Now, just think about this and just consider this and understand this. And talking about Mother's Day today and families and 
are super important to God because our marriages are supposed to be a symbol of God's love for humanity. Okay, so just think about this. If you have a wife uh, that cooks but doesn't clean, you tend to focus on the cleaning side. You have a husband that uh, works hard, but he never picks up around the house. You focus on the thing that he doesn't do. And I can see heads turning already. See, I told you it was good to come to Mother's Day today. See, aren't you glad we came to Mother's Day? And then the other person's going, I wish I wouldn't have come today on Mother's Day because, you know. Okay, so what you're doing right there when you're having those conversations about focusing on the things that your kids don't do rather than being focusing on the things that they do. Okay, so, so his whole point is, how can I get you to focus on the things and to lose sight of the things that God does for you. Here's the point. Satan wants your eyes off anything that gives God glory. So he'll fix your eyes on the thing that doesn't give him glory. Or, or, or the things that kind of off the path. And what does he do in the garden? It's the same play. We should know better than this as Christians by now. You should know this. And you know it now. So don't be tricked by his schemes, Paul would say. Because he's going to play the same card that he played on Adam and Eve. He's going to play it on you. He's going to try to get you to focus on the things you don't have. You have a job that pays the bills, but you don't have the yacht. And you're mad that you don't have the yacht. You're mad that you don't get to go on the vacations, and you get the month-long vacations, and you don't get to travel. And you look at everybody else traveling over the summer, and you're frustrated because you don't get to travel. And so it all gets you wound up inside, and it gets you frustrated and irritated, and eventually it could lead you to make decisions that you shouldn't make in best interest for your family, all because Satan's got your eyes on something that you don't have versus being grateful for the things that you actually do have. So this is real practical, right? Like this isn't always as, uh, in a way, it's like, gosh, I didn't see it that way, you know? So there's all kinds of ways that Satan will approach attack, ultimately to get your eyes off the things that you do have so you lose sight of what you don't have. So the next time you're tempted to focus on what you don't have, start praising God for what you do have. Give God glory for what you do. And watch your heart be transformed. Number three, keep us from all God has for us. Ultimately, it comes down to this, that his whole goal is to keep from you, or, you know, from all that God wants to do in your life. He, he wants to make sure that you ultimately don't figure out, find out everything that God wants to do through you and in you. So John 10.10, 10, the thief's purpose, his whole purpose, that's his goal, is to still kill and destroy. But God's purpose is to give them rich and satisfying life. So the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, but slaves in Texas weren't told until June of 1865. Okay, so that means that they were free but didn't know it. So Satan wants to keep you just like that, living like you're a slave, when really your freedom papers have been signed. So his whole point is to keep you away from all the goodness of God. And he does this in all kinds of ways. He'll get you to convince yourself that you shouldn't have to show up to, to be encouraged and share in the communion of the Lord with, with the body of Christ on a Sunday morning. He'll do all he can to put other things in your schedule throughout the week, throughout the season, throughout whatever it is. Whatever it is to keep you from the goodness of God. We'll unpack that even a little bit more. I want you to know today it's true that your freedom papers have been signed. And in Christ, you can experience true and lasting freedom. Yet there's many people who don't understand that. They think this is a religious thing or they have a different perception on the matter. And yet God has signed release papers and yet people still live in slavery to sin every single day. And even believers, remember Paul is writing too, can still live in bondage and chained to his sins in their life, habitual sins and addictions and all kinds of things, unforgiveness, all kinds of things, still living in the heart of many believers 
even though Christ has died for those things, they could be set free from those things. So I want to give you now his approach. I talked about his goals, now his approach. So four uh, attacks, I'll say, evil attacks. And I put the word evil attacks at four stages so that we see it's not just Satan, it's demonic forces. So it's not just against Satan, it's against all his demonic forces. So evil attacks in four stages. And I'll give them to you all up top. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. In other words, when Satan attacks, he moves in this progression. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. And I'll unpack these, okay? These are the four stages in which he moves. So desire. We all have desires. Everybody say amen. amen. All right, you all have desires. Satan knows that. God gave you desires. Desires in of themselves are not bad. When you see the word lust in Scripture... A lot of times that can equate to desire or a form of a desire. And I'll even say when it's used in Scripture towards sin, it's of an evil desire or the wrong desire or it begins to take a turn. Okay. But not all desire is inherently bad. Just we have desires. Just Satan knows that. So here's what he does. His approach is to twist those desires and turn them to harm rather than good. Now here's a key point I need you to write down. Sin is harmful, not helpful. Some of us think that, well, sin, it, 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 it leads us out of heaven. No, remember, Christ died for your sins, and I'm talking to believers. If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, saved by his grace, that sin has been paid for. So, so when you sin, it's not that it's keeping you from heaven. No, it's bringing harm to your relationship with God, and it's bringing harm to you. It's not helpful. Let me explain how Satan works here. Desire for food is good. Everybody say Amen. You ever had just hungry? You're like, ooh, I'm really hungry. And you just look at the food and you're thinking, man, this is going to be good. I have a desire for food. Well, who put the desire for food inside of you? God. There's a desire. Thank God for food. Amen. Yes? So four of you are thankful for food. Everybody else is like, ah, I could go without. <laughs> you know? Okay. So, yeah. So we have these desires for food. So what does Satan do? Well, he twists that and he'll take that desire and turn it into gluttony, Satan. Right? It just, it takes a turn. All right, desire for sex is good. Now, all the married people said? Amen. Hey. <laughs> Amen. Right? So, so what does Satan do? Takes the same desire, twists it, turns it into immorality, sin. He takes the desire and turns it and he twists it for something that's harmful. Desire for sleep. How many love to sleep? You love summer vacations, and your plan this summer is to sleep. Anybody have that plan? You're like, we're just going to go somewhere and sleep. <laughs> People are, that's the loudest clap I've had all day is like, sleep. Yeah. Okay. So, think about this. You have a desire for rest. Everybody has a desire for rest. That makes sense. Well, how does Satan take that desire and turn it into sin or something that's harmful? Somebody said it? Laziness. He'll make you turn over three or four times in your bed. Hit the snooze button a few times. And before you know it, watch this. This happens to so many of us, right? You missed your devotion that morning. Victory's won. Or you decide to sleep in. And then you don't go to work that day. Or something happens and you miss some payments. or Whatever it may be. You know, just think about how he can take the desire for sleep, desire for rest, and turn it into something that was never really intended to do in the first place. Right? Sin is harmful. It's not helpful. I just want to remind you that sin is harmful. I felt so impressed by the Holy Spirit to remind you today, sin is harmful. If you would begin to see that sin is harmful, you might see sin a lot differently than you currently do it. I've never felt better because I was jealous. 
How many of you were jealous and you thought, man, I'm so glad I was jealous today. It really helped me. Anybody ever found just, see, none of you, and jealousy is a sin. See, it's harmful. It's harmful. Have any of you ever gossiped or been on the other side of gossip and thought, I'm so glad somebody gossiped about me today. That's so great. We, we're really advancing in our work environment through gossip. It's really helping here. Anybody? Okay. Anybody thought, man, I'm so glad that she lied to me. Man, I mean, this, the, now the trust is broken and our relationship is so much better out of this. Our marriage has never been better. We trust each other less. I'm, you, you're laughing. Okay, so what I'm saying to you is, then why do you sin? You would fight so much more deeply if you understood how harmful sin is. See, so what Paul is saying is, I want you to see it this way so you learn to fight against it. Because we're talking about a spiritual fight. Stay away from sin. Why? It's harmful. All right, so the second stage, deception. I wrote down small steps, not giant leaps. Deception. Now, deception is this, a little bit of truth, a little bit of a lie. Most often, demons don't show up with pitchforks screaming. Maybe some of you have seen Satan show up on your house, and he's got, you know, goo, or however we draw Satan and demons, and we draw them all kinds of ways, right? That's, that's not normally how he shows up for most people. Do you want to tell you how deception, this is deception, okay? Here's what he does, and let's go to food. He'll get you to taste sugar. Just think about it. Think about all the obesity that's in our world today and all the deaths that happen because of heart disease. Heart disease, right, is a big killer in our world. Is that true in America? Yeah. I'm confirming it with one of our doctors. In our make, make sense? Yes. Heart disease kills. Number one. Think about how many people have died short and did not fulfill their God's purposes because they had a taste of sugar. And I'm not saying sugar in of itself is wrong. I'm not saying sugar and how much sugar is, but how he just sneaks himself in is all I'm saying. Right? And kids struggle with good sugar and then they don't want to have vegetables, things that are healthy for them. Instead, they want to consume things that are harmful to them. Does that make sense? All right, it's like, like real slow and steady, okay? Um, couples, sexual immorality, all this stuff, they just lay down next to each other. It's like a small step. I'm not saying it's sin to lay down next to somebody you're not married to. I'm just saying it can easily turn into that, right? Okay. Um, how about hitting the snooze button? You know, hitting the snooze button, turning over a few times. You know, it's, it's, it's like just small little things, you know? So I just want you to see how Satan operates in a very deceiving way. He doesn't show up loud. I'm after you today. It's like sometimes it feels that way, but it's like small, little, steady steps. Key point, demons are more often subtle than they are obvious. Write that down. They're more often subtle than they are obvious. After Satan messes with your desire and deceives you, it turns to disobedience. James 1.14 says, temptation comes out from your own desires, which entices us and drags us away. Look at the progression here. These desires give birth to sinful actions. So you've got desires, enticing, that's deception. Then you've got action, then you've got death. There it is, laid out right there for us, the formula. One, two, three, four. Do you see it? And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So there's the progression. It goes from desire to deception, right, to disobedience, right, or disobedience. And then it goes to the action or to, to death, I'm sorry. So death. Death can show up in many forms, by the way. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
Ultimately, sin leads to death. Now, it doesn't always mean physical death. Sometimes it does. But it could be death to a marriage, death to a relationship, death to a friendship, death to your finances, death to your peace, death to your hope, death to your trust in the Lord, death to your view of the church, death to your calling. All kinds of things. Remember, ultimately to make you ineffective. Remember, Satan can't keep the believer from heaven, so he'll do all he can to keep you ineffective, ungrateful, and ultimately miss out on all God has for you. And he'll do that by adjusting your desires one step at a time to get you to act on the evil desire and ultimately turn to death and miss out on everything God has for you. I just unfolded for you a very clear-cut plan on Satan and his demonic forces and how they attack you. Okay. Now you say, well, what does that really mean for my life? Give me an example. I'll give you an example. And I'm only going to use these as examples because they're very clear examples. And I could give a lot. So I'm going to ask you to take these examples, and maybe they'll relate to you, maybe they won't, uh, but try to take this example and then consider your life, what area in the life that maybe this is being done or being revealed, okay? So one example, drinking in of itself, you might say it's not bad, okay? And then someone could debate that, but, but I'm just saying drinking uh, a, a drink of alcohol, a glass of wine, okay? Now, most of us have experienced this before, this, this idea of drinking a glass of wine or something like that. Now, me, never, no, 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 but... but <laughs> All I'm saying is you, you, you have the desire to have a glass of wine. Have you ever had a desire to have a glass of wine? Anybody have that desire? Wait until every hand goes up. Or not. I said wine. How about shots? Anybody desire to have a Okay, don't put your hand down. <laughs> I saw a hand. Well, that's me. That's, I'm the shot person. Okay. Um, okay, so you have desire to have a drink, right? That's, it starts with a desire. You're on vacation. You're at the beach. You've seen the Corona commercials. And you're like, well, got to have a drink. Okay, so you have this desire. But then, deception comes. One small step at a time. Hey, no one's here, it's just you and me. It's like, you know, I work hard. You know what I mean? Like, I put a lot of work in. We haven't had vacation in like a year. You're looking really good in your bathing suit, summertime. Let's spice this thing up a little bit. The silence says, you're absolutely right, Ricky. (laughs) It's exactly what happens. And all of a sudden, deception creeps in. And then before you know it, it turns to disobedience and you're in drunkenness. Now, you say, well, it didn't lead to death. I'm strong enough. I'm powerful enough. But I just want you to consider this fight. And maybe for you, maybe for you, it has not turned to quote-unquote death. Maybe for you, alcoholism and addiction. But watch this. Watch this. I want you to consider how many people have died because somebody said yes to one drink. And they couldn't set it down after that. Marriages. Think about all the abuse that people have experienced. Children. Husbands, wives, spouses. DUIs. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, be careful, be careful when you have a drink because it'll bite you back real hard. And some of you grew up in homes where you're like, I know that truth. Leads to death. Be careful. Next one, desire for money. We need money. Money in and of itself isn't bad. It's the way that we exchange and trade. Money in and of itself isn't. It's the desire. What does Satan do? He twists the desire for money to overtake your life and eventually turns it 
for many people running away from God's calling on their life. Why? Because they begin to turn towards the wealth of the world, which leads to ultimately keeping the believer ineffective. Think about all the families who've been destroyed, not because of money, but the desire for money, for more money. How many husbands or wives have divorced one another because their career became more important than their family or way of living? You see, he takes the desire for provision. The desire to provide men is not bad in of itself, but Satan can get in there and turn it and twist it where all of a sudden it becomes the most important thing in your life, which is sin, because God is number one in your life. You are not the provider. God is the provider. And you begin to take the responsibility to provide versus shifting it over to the Lord, which causes all kinds of problems. You see, this gets really, really deceptive really, really fast. So now that we know the goals and approaches of Satan, let's turn back to the shoes of peace and see how they help us stand firm. So he says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. When the day of evil comes, I want you to be ready. And we're talking about peace. The word peace in Greek language is the word irene, which means an inner resting of soul. It's also uh, intertwined with the uh, Hebrew word most of you have heard, shalom, which is uh, this kind of wholeness, this completeness. And I defined it like this. I think it helps make sense in this way. An inner resting of the soul regardless of outside influences. There's an inner peace regardless of what's happening around you. The opposite then would be inner chaos, anxiety, and worry. So he says, put on these peace shoes, if you would. I want you to have peace inside of you, regardless of what's happening circumstantially in the world around you. The peace of God is when you're at rest, right in the word rest, when everything else is all wrong. This is the peace that God is offering. This is the peace that, that as Satan approaches and attacks in all of these ways, this is the peace Christ wants you to have. There is a way to have peace when all other things are wrong. So peace shoes, I just said it can help us in three ways, okay, our peace shoes, all right? Number one, peace protects. I want you to see this. It says in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will, what's the word? Guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So peace is for your protection. So Paul says, when you face the battles of this world and all kinds of circumstances, situations overcome you in your life, I want you to have peace. Peace will protect you. It'll protect your mind from going to stress, worry, fear, and all kinds of things like this, which ultimately fear, stress, worry can ultimately lead to depression and all kinds of other issues, all kinds of other battles and struggles, which then lead to all other kinds of things. And so he says, peace will protect you. Number two, he says, peace guides you. Look what it says. Let the peace of Christ rule. This is Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful, he says. Now, the word rule in Greek word means to umpire, like a literal umpire in a baseball game or some kind of sport. So let's say, you know, baseball. What, what, what do umpires do? They call the shots. Ultimately, their decision is final. So what is Paul saying when you wear these peace shoes? Hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to allow peace to call the shots. When you make decisions, let them be umpired by God's peace. Meaning don't make decisions based on what you fear, worry, anxiety. Do not make decisions out of fear, worry, or anxiety. Make your decisions on peace. Let the peace of God umpire your life. Let peace call the shots. 
Peace guides us. If you're ever in a decision, you have to make a, a decision, uh, purchases or whatever it may be, where's, where's peace at? Oftentimes, where peace is is where Christ is, right? Like, that's a way of navigating those decisions. Is there peace there? That even if you don't understand it, I have peace about it. It transcends. It goes beyond the understanding. All right, number three. Here's what peace does. Peace sanctifies. This one gets a little more complicated, so I'll unpack it. May God himself, it says in 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. There it is. It sanctifies us through and through. May your whole spirit, here's the three, spirit, soul, and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So I need three volunteers, and I did not pre-select you. So I'm going to, Phil, you're always up here, I know. And Damon, come up here. And Rick, come up here. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Come fast as you can. It would really help me. And I just need three of you to stand here. And uh, I know. I'm sorry, Phil. I'm sorry. Just turn around this way, and then you guys get on that side of him. You guys get on that side. That would be great. And uh, Phil's going to represent the spirit, and Damon's going to be the soul, and um, Rick's going to be the body. Okay, so remember I told you about this, that we're all, we, we have like three parts to us, right? We have spirit, we have soul, and we have body. Now, I want you to understand this as I read this to you, and you kind of illustrate this. When a believer makes Christ the master of their life, salvation occurs, and the believer gets a new spirit. Unfortunately, Phil was not the, 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 the Holy Spirit, so Phil, have a seat. We want a new spirit, so I need a new spirit up here now. Megan, his better half, okay, his better half, yeah, we'll get a, a yeah, he calls on his wife to go up here. Thank you, Megan, for coming up. So here's what happened. So whenever the, the spirit of the flesh, okay, the spirit of Adam, if you would, that's kind of, or not spirit of Adam, but let's call it this, this evil spirit, maybe not the good spirit or kind of the bad spirit, so just, just follow me on this. When you, when you get saved, the Bible says you're a new creation. And we talked about this, what, what part of you get saved? Well, your body doesn't get saved because your body doesn't go on. Your body goes to dust and you get a new body in heaven. So the spirit becomes new. So now we have a new spirit. Now this spirit has the same power in it that Christ has in it. Like, like, like this is the Holy Spirit, full of power, full of all kinds of goodness, peace, joy, strength, and all kinds of things. And this spirit does not freak out and panic when chaos is around. This, this peace sleeps in a boat when storms are crashing around it. This peace is confident in the Father. This peace has like superpower strength, not just physical might, but inner might, like inner strength. And even when all things are going wrong, this spirit stays strong and never panics, never worries, never freaks out, has no anxiety, no place in it, fully confident in God and that God will come through every single time. And that spirit, the Bible says, lives actually in you as a believer. Here's the problem. We all have a daemon inside of us. Now, daemon is the soul. That is your will, your mind, and your emotions. And, and if I could, like the movie Ghost, take Megan and put her inside of daemon, that would be really cool, first of all. But I can't. But, but if you could take the spirit, and the spirit lives in the distorted soul. Your soul is being sanctified. Your soul is being worked out because the soul craves evil things. And so these two things are in conflict with one another. The spirit is trying to penetrate the soul while the soul tends to worry first, stress first, have anxious thoughts first, doubt, fear, all kinds of things begin to consume the soul. 
And so what Paul is saying is you've got this spirit inside of you that's trying to penetrate the soul. Now, whatever happens in the soul eventually gets manifested through Rick, the body. Have you ever been so worried that your body hurt? Raise your hand if you ever had physical pain or physical something because of stress or worry, right? All kinds of stuff can happen to us. Sweating, stomach pains, right? Shakiness, nervous, like all these things get manifested. What's happening? The spirit is not able to penetrate the soul. The soul's the one dictating what's happening, and the soul then manifests itself out in the body. But what Christ is saying is, I've got a new spirit of peace inside of you, and if you just listen to that spirit, that spirit will take over the soul and then get manifested in the body. And now when the same situation comes, the spirit pours peace, the soul becomes convinced there's peace, has to understand truth. Because the soul and the spirit are in conflict, the only thing they can agree upon is truth. Now watch this. So truth of God is powerful and active and it is the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is three in one with God. Here it is. So the Word of God, who is truth, truth comes in agreement with the soul, because the soul is created by God and for God. So now the soul comes into agreement with the truth, and once the soul comes into agreement with the truth, all of a sudden, raise your hands, even though there's, uh, you don't have to, just the body does. Go ahead, body. So, so all I'm saying is now that even though the same circumstances happened, because the Spirit has fed the soul, the soul, raise your hands, even though there's all kinds of stuff going wrong, he's in praise. How does that happen? Because the spirit poured into the soul, then the soul leads to the body. Well, this becomes really, really important. You can put your hands down, but stay on stage for just a minute. So, our souls, Damon over there, have been affected by our environment, haven't they? Yes, they have. What's been said to us in the past, your soul got damaged. What goes on in the world? Your soul takes a hit. Somebody misled you. Somebody misspoke to you. Somebody caused physical or emotional harm to you. Your soul takes the hit. No doubt about it. I don't question that at all. That happens to us. Our environment, our world, our culture. And when your soul is not operating according to the Spirit, anxiety, worry, stress begin to influence the body. So what's happening? The soul begins to control the body, which is what Satan wants. Because he doesn't want God's peace to umpire your life. He wants the distorted soul to run your life. So Paul says, for this, put on the shoes of peace that comes from the good news so you'll be able to be fully prepared. Thank you, guys. Have a seat. Thank you. I hope that illustration helped make sense to you, how there's three parts in you. But he says there's good news. And I'll invite the band up for just a minute here. We're going to sing a song. He says there's good news so you'll be fully prepared. Good news, by the way, is a Greek word that meant good news. Shocker. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to know about this word in Greek. Oftentimes, this word would not be used in Greek language. And the reason why is because it meant news too good to be true. In other words, we don't talk about this kind of news too much because this is like that. It just seems too good to be true. Have you ever said that? Understand that. It's too good to be true. This can't be. You don't believe it. You get something in the bank. You won $1 million. All you got to do is open the envelope. You're like, that's too good to be true. And then you don't even open it, right? 
Yes, you get stuff like this or other kind of marketing strategies that convince you or you get those guys who are like, hey, just follow my plan. You'll be a billionaire. You know, just, just pay me $9,000 and come to my one-day conference, but you'll be a billionaire. I'm broke if I go to your conference. Anyways, um, but, but it's too good to be true. So when we see the word good news in Scripture, understand if you're reading it in their context, in their culture, you would have said, this is too good to be true. So the question then is, what is this good news that's too good to be true? Now, follow me on this as we wrap up. It's not just that Jesus made a way for you to go to heaven. It's that he offers you a new way of living, a new spirit. That's really good news. Because you don't have to operate according to the standard of what you're naturally intended to do. I naturally go to worry. I naturally go to anxiety. I naturally go to all things that lack peace. But Christ has deposited in you a new spirit. And that spirit can give you the power to overcome stuff when you don't even understand how in the world you're going to overcome it. That spirit can put peace in you when all hell is breaking loose on you. You can dance in victory in Christ even though the world's in chaos around you because there's an inner peace that you have. That's really good news. It goes beyond the fact that Jesus made a way to heaven. He says, no, he came to live inside of you now. This is great news. Key truth. The only way to experience the peace, right in the word peace, that the Spirit wants to provide you is to submit your soul to God's truth. I'll say it one more time. The only way to experience the peace the Spirit wants to provide you is to submit your soul to God's truth. The Spirit goes to work, taking out all the fear and anxiety and worry and replaces it with peace. The Spirit goes to work. This is the process called sanctification. He, he goes to work on your soul, removing all the past pain and restoring it with joy and forgiveness. How could you struggle with such abuse as a child and now you live in victory for Christ because the Spirit went to work on my soul. And He begins to chisel stuff out of me and restore me. This is the process of sanctification. And then all of a sudden, you get a person who's experienced great pain and great tragedy and yet they're dancing in victory, singing to the Lord every day. How? The Spirit went to work on the soul, on the soul, on the body, on the, or on the will, on the mind, on the emotions, and then gets revealed in the body. This is great, great news. You're told that you're ugly or worthless as a child, but then truth comes. Your spirit speaks to you and says, that's not true. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. That was a lie. Truth is, you are worthy of this Christ's death on a cross, and you are good, and you're a daughter to a king, and you're a son to a king. And your spirit pours that into your soul until your soul begins to buy into understanding this is truth. This is actually true. I am not worthless. I am not ugly. I am perfectly made. That's why declaring God's truth is so important. I hope you're getting this, church. Your soul says, your soul says you're broke, but your spirit says God will provide. And as I shout this, I even get excited thinking so many times, I'm broke. I'm not broke. God is not broke. And I have access to everything that he has. You see? And all of a sudden, I'm not panicking if you've got a dollar in the bank. No, God will provide. So I get a great news. I have the spirit inside of me tucked into my 
soul, which then turns to my body. So you lost your job? Yeah. Well, then why are you praising the Lord? Because God's about to come through in a new way. You see this? Your soul says you can't, but your spirit says when God is behind it, anything is possible. Putting on your peace shoe means aligning your soul under the rule of the Holy Spirit which lives in you. Bottom line, if you want peace, write it in, peace, then let God's truth guide your life. When peace is being taken from you, replace it with God and says on the matter. Replace it with what God says on the matter. If, if you're saying, man, is this true? What does God say on it? Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all that He has done. Then you experience God's peace. How? When you come into an alignment with His will. When you come to prayer, where you get will alignment. The peace of God transcends your heart. It exceeds anything that you can understand. And His peace will guard the hearts and minds of you who live in Christ Jesus. Would you stand to your feet today? Whatever it is you might be facing and battling. I want to encourage you with this thought. Have peace. Jesus said that take heart, I've overcome the world. And my hope today, in this moment, as we talked about last week, as you sing God's praises, you would allow the Spirit of God that lives inside of you as a believer. And if you're not a believer, then I urge you and I plead with you to allow His Spirit to take over your life. And maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. Like, how in the world could I live in such a chaotic world, in a chaos situation, and still have peace? And I want that kind of peace. I want to be able to have peace when all hell is breaking loose on me. Then my only hope for you and my encouragement is say this. Then invite God's Spirit to live in you. And when His Spirit lives in you, you will have 